This is definitely the most practical section of the epistle to the Galatians. And you guys might, I'm sure you remember that in going through this letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's dealing with the aftermath of false teaching creeping into churches that he planted. Paul planted these churches. He planted these churches on the only foundation that any church can be planted. He planted them on Jesus Christ. He preached Jesus to these different Gentile villages as, as the God become man, as the one who died for their sins, as the one who resurrected from the dead, as the one who ascended to the Father, as the one who sent the Spirit, and as the one who would come back to reign on this earth. He preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what he experienced, what he saw firsthand, was the evidence of God's grace in these villages in Galatia radically changing people. I mean, people were set free. People who used to worship false gods and, 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 and worship demons were set free to worship the true and living God. People who only lived for themselves were set free from that selfishness and began to be free to, to, to love others and see them as better than themselves. He saw this firsthand. And so when these Judaizers, when these false teachers came about who said, hey, it's good that you became a Christian, but you really need to become a Jew first and then a Christian, when these Judaizers came about and Paul heard of the damage that was being done, when Paul heard of the burden that was being placed on these guys, his heart was broken. And so he thought, I need to write a letter that would be you know, dispersed around these different churches, read around these churches to tell them, listen, there's no other gospel than the gospel that we shared with you. And even if we share something else, let us be damned because it's the gospel that sets men free. It's the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. And so he writes this letter and he, he makes it really clear through the first four chapters that the gospel is not Jesus plus the law. The gospel is not Jesus minus repentance. The gospel is just Jesus. It's, it's the fact that the good news is the fact that we are saved, that we are given an eternal relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and that this grace, this radical transforming grace does just that. It changes us. It doesn't just guarantee our future. It doesn't just wash away our past. It actually changes us here and now. There's a transformation that takes place. And we began to see that last week, didn't we, in chapter 5, where Paul talks about that it's for freedom that you've been set free. Where Paul talks about this reality that we haven't been free just so we can, hey, look at that, we're, we're free, we're forgiven, let's just party and do what we want until we get to heaven. No, we're free that we might serve one another that we might demonstrate the gospel of Jesus through how we treat each other, through our relationships with each other. And he continues in that same vein in what we get here in chapter 6, this first part of chapter 6. Now, Paul, when he writes this letter, he is writing to several churches in several villages. But what's really unique about this section is the things that Paul is exhorting these people to do are things that need to be done that really can only be expressed, can only be done within the context of a local church. That's why, of course, the title of today's message is The Gospel in the Local Church, because it's important for us to see that the gospel of Jesus is meant to be lived out, it's meant to be experienced, it's meant to be expressed within the context of a singular local church. This is a huge controversy among Christians today. It's a controversy for two reasons. One is, we don't like to be held accountable to things. I think one of the reasons for churches getting bigger and more program-based and more entertainment-based, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, maybe the negative reason I might say, is the fact that people would rather be in a big, entertaining, program-based church where they can hide and receive, and nobody actually holds them accountable to do anything. Nobody actually calls them to live out the gospel. I had some very painful conversations over the last couple of weeks exhorting some brothers and sisters who, who attend our fellowship from time to time or, or maybe have been coming to a Friday night. And, but we've had conversations over the last several months, some of these people over the last couple of years, about what they felt like God was calling them to do. And they felt like God was calling them to stay in their church but come here and get the occasional Bible study. And for some of those guys, the occasional Bible study was wanting to be here for three months in a row and then go back to their own fellowship. 
And I had to sit down and talk with them and say, listen, we love having you here. We love being with you guys. But I'm really convicted about this reality that we, every single one of us, need to be committed to a local church. There's many things that God commands us to do that we cannot do unless we're committed, unless we have real committed relationships to a local church. Now, for you guys that are visiting today, you might be thinking, oh no, (laughs) I just came by to say hello. (laughs) You're coming down pretty heavy, you know. And and this really is not about you, you should never visit another church or you should never have fellowship with other Christians from other churches. Absolutely not. We, we definitely need to recognize the body of Christ is way bigger than our local church. But the commands that God gives us to, to demonstrate the gospel, to share the gospel together, which is our mission, are, and many of those commands can only be expressed in real, committed relationships. And let's be totally honest, guys. Can we have real, committed relationships when we go from church to church to church to church? We can't, can we? And so we need to find a place where God has said, this is where I'm calling you. This is where I want you to be. And we need to grow in that church. And you guys know, I'm sure those of you who are closer to my age know that there's no such thing as a perfect church. If you've been going to a church for a while, you know, man, there's just no such thing for, as a perfect church. You can, you can go to this church and it's got, man, the people really love to worship and there seems to be an openness to things of the Spirit and go, oh, that's awesome. But then the teaching's bone dry. You can go to another church where the teaching's really good, but the worship's a little... Mm. Or you can go to a church where maybe both of the things are okay, but there's, no, there's nothing for the rest of the family. You know, the kids' ministry's not too great, or you know, the youth ministry's not too great, or they don't have their own building, or they do have their own building, but then nobody's in it, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's all different kinds of things, isn't there? I mean, we, there, there's no such thing as a perfect church. But there are churches that are centered on the gospel. There's more than one church, I, I believe, in this city that's centered on the gospel. And we have a responsibility as people who believe the gospel, as people who say Jesus is our Lord, to commit to one of those fellowships so that we can do these things that Paul's talking about today. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you four basic things that I think we need to be doing as a local church. I, th- I think every local church needs to be doing these things, but specifically I think we need to be pursuing as a local church. In verse 1, Paul says this. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one. Now, when Paul talks about someone being overtaken in any trespass, he uses wording that's very specific for a specific reason. Overtaken, it means, it's this idea that you just can't seem to kind of get out from underneath that. You, you, you just, it's come upon you, you're, it's like you've been avalanched, you know? You're walking down some snowy path near a hillside and there's a rumble and you look up and ah, you're avalanched. Something came upon you, you're under it, and, and there's not much you can do. You want to dig yourself out, but you don't know which way is up, and you're like, I'm stuck, overtaken. He uses this word trespass. It's a word that's a, a little, I don't want to say it's not as strong, but it's, it's more specific. There's a word for sin. It's the word sin that you see translated in the New Testament. That's a word that means missing the mark. And this is a word trespass that means slipping, it's this idea that you are walking somewhere and, and you know you need to be cautious, but what happens? Slip, bam, you fall. You're, and you're overtaken by that situation. There used to be this American TV show where there's this nerdy character named Urkel. I don't know if you guys know who I'm talking about. He used to say, I've fallen and I can't get up. And that's sort of what it is. It's like this idea that you've slipped. You're like, ah, oh, I can't move. I'm stuck. I've fallen and I can't get up. I'm in this place. I'm overtaken in a trespass. If you've walked with God for any period of time, you know even when you're walking with God, there are times when we can easily be overtaken in a trespass. And it's important for us to recognize the difference between being overtaken in a trespass and living in sin. Living in sin is when you're not slipping and falling in the mud, it's when you'd rather just live in the mud. (laughs) Living in sin is when you think, oh, I really like this sin. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to hide this sin, I'm going to act like I don't have this sin, and I'm going to enjoy this sin. 
That's living in sin. And let me just say something really clear. If you say you believe in Jesus and you are comfortable living in sin, you lie. You lie because there's no way a person who really knows the creator of the universe, a person who really knows that their sins have been forgiven, that they've been set free, can be comfortable living in sin. I'm not talking about that. If you enjoy sin, and obviously sin is pleasurable for a season, the Bible even says that, but if you're happy in your sin, if you're enjoying your sin, you like being addicted to pornography. You like the way it feels when you get so drunk that you're puking. You know? You like a little motta in the morning, you know? You're into all this stuff. If you are enjoying your sin, if you like living for you and you alone, you don't want anybody else telling you what to do, if you're happy in that place, then the Bible would say that is a sure sign that you have not experienced what Jesus said you absolutely need, the new birth. You haven't experienced the new birth. You haven't been regenerated. And I don't say that to judge you. I don't say it to say, hey, we're better than you because we've experienced that and you haven't. We're not better than you, but I'll tell you what, if you've been born again, you're definitely better off than someone who's not. (laughs) You're better off because you know you've been set free from sin. But here's the thing. We can be believers. We can be those who have been born in the Spirit. And we can slip and we can fall into sin and feel like, oh man, I'm here. I can't seem to get back up. I keep falling in the same place in the same place and be in a miserable condition. And when we're in that miserable condition, Paul says something needs to take place. He calls it restoration. He says, he says you know what? If a, there's a, a man in your fellowship, a, a person in your fellowship, man or a woman, who's overtaken in any trespass, has fallen for any reason, you who are spiritual, restore. Notice he doesn't say ignore. If there's anyone in your midst who's in the sin, just ignore him. Just kind of say, sorry, we can't talk with you now. You're just too in sin. If there's someone who's slipped in the trespass, it doesn't say, it doesn't say, you know, tell them off. You idiot, what's wrong with you, stupid? It doesn't say condemn them. It doesn't say approve them. It doesn't say, oh yeah, that's all right, everybody sins. No big deal. Still don't enjoy too much, buddy. Boys will be boys. No, it doesn't say approve. It says restore. You see, if, if we're going to be a local church that, that is actually expressing the gospel, we need to be those who are in the business of restoration. We are pursuing personally with each other restitution or, or restoration. What, in fact, specifically, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So it needs to be gentle restoration. Now, I'm not saying there's not a need for church discipline. There's a huge need for church discipline. Most churches don't discipline people. They let their people just continue to sin and sin and sin. And man, we drag the gospel in the mud and we wonder why nobody believes. With other people sin and sin and sin and we see marriages falling apart and we see... You know, we see young people get enslaved to sexuality, their sexuality, instead of being free in their sexuality. We see people who, who, who get addictions and who people who, who can't seem to get their lives in a normal, peaceful state. Why? Because we let them continue over and over and over in sin and we don't bring about discipline. But long before the discipline process happens, there needs to be between us as brothers and sisters, sort of one-to-one, a willingness to restore gently. We need, and that, you know what that means? That, that assumes, it implies that we know one another well enough to know when something's not right. That we know each other well enough that we can say, you know, something doesn't seem to be right with this guy. And we, we know each other well enough that we can relate to each other. We can ask, hey, how you doing, man? What's going on with you? You know, one of the things that is, was so great about my week this week was I got to go and be with six other brothers who love Jesus with all their heart and who know exactly what it's like to be a pastor, because they're all pastors. And one of the first things that we did after we just sort of opened up in, in prayer with each other and just were praying for each other is begin to just be open about where we fall short. Man, I am really blowing it in this area. Man, I'm just really overwhelmed in this area. Man, I feel like I'm not moving forward in this area. And just sharing how we just feel so overwhelmed. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing more refreshing than being with brothers and sisters that you know you can be 100% open with and just say, here's where I feel overtaken and know that you're going to have someone who's going to gently restore you. 
We need to practice this. Now, when he says those who are spiritual, he's not talking about some sort of hyper-spiritual person. He's talking about something real. He's talking about those who, as we saw earlier in chapter 5, or, or in chapter 5, those who are actually walking in the Spirit. Remember, there's two ways we can live this, this Christian life. We can, okay, at once we've been born of the Spirit, once we've believed that Jesus has died for our sins and arisen from the dead, once He has become our Lord and Savior, we can choose from that point on to live in the flesh, which is in our own strength, or we can choose to live in the Spirit, which is His strength. And so the person that's spiritual is not somebody who just thinks they're all that and has, their, has their, all their ducks in a row, spiritually speaking, and, and is more moral than somebody else and goes to church more often. No, the person that is spiritual is one who understands and is completely append, dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They know, except for the work of the Spirit, they would be overtaken and trespassed as well. In fact, that's part of the warning that Paul gives in verse 1. He says, listen, you who are spiritual, you're walking in the Spirit, restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, why? Lest you also be tempted. Well, I'll tell you one of the, one of the hardest things about being a pastor is every time you do counseling with somebody, you, you, you sort of, it's, it's the weirdest thing. It doesn't matter how vile their sin is, you find yourself wrestling with that sin. It's, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's, it's really difficult. I did some marriage counseling years and years ago. This is in California with a couple that they actually weren't even believers and, and uh, I was shocked they wanted to see me but they did and as I was sharing with these, with these people they started sharing the kind of stuff they're involved in and it was just horrible I mean I mean oh. <laughs> it made like Coronation Street look like Sesame Street I mean it was just like really bad and, and, and the stuff they're involved in was just really horrible and I remember getting done with that and going home that night and just going I feel so dirty I did I felt dirty and it's not me judging that I just felt oh. and it was like from that from that Sort of point on for about a couple of weeks, I kept having it. Really, Sarah and I were praying. I just feel, you know, I, I was being situations that they put themselves in, and, and which I couldn't avoid. And I started to feel like, oh man, am I going to fall? Am I going to fall? Because it was just there's something defiling about being that. And it really reminded me of this verse that when we're trying to help other people, we need to take heed to ourselves. You know why? Because we have such this nature, guys, this sinful nature, that we can get sucked into any sin, any sin. And so Paul's saying, listen, we need to be those kind of people. You need to be a kind of local church that's gently restoring one another because it's Jesus who's restored you. And yet when you're restoring each other, you need to be sober because there's a reality that you can still be tempted even when you're trying to restore somebody who's fallen into a trespass. So there needs to be this humility. There needs to be this willingness to do this. In fact, this is what he's talking about when he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. What burden? Interesting, that word for burden there, it's a word that means to be carrying something that one person shouldn't be carrying. It's probably the first and maybe even the only health and safety note in the Bible. <laughs> That's too heavy, it takes two people. You know, you can picture that little placard there with, you know, showing two guys to carry it. It's this idea that there's a, there, you're, you have a burden on you and one person cannot carry that burden without doing damage to themselves. What's the burden in the context? A trespass. Get it through your head, believer. You can't handle your own sin on your own. That's why we need Jesus. And that's why we need each other. We can't do it on our own. We need each other to bear one of those burdens. I'm so thankful that with some of you brothers, I'm beginning to develop a relationship where I can be that honest. It's a little hard for me, I confess, because I'm the pastor and I don't want to freak everybody out. You know? Sometimes I'm honest and it comes back to bite me because people exaggerate or start rumors and it's like, Did you know Pastor John? You know? <laughs> I didn't do that. Whoa, went back off. You know? But I'm, I'm thankful that I've been in a place where with some of you brothers, I'm being able to get more and more honest and just say, here's where I'm struggling. Would you pray for me in this? Would you help me in this? And vice versa. We need to be that way as brothers and sisters in Christ where we can have an honesty, where we can bear each other's burdens because guys, guess what? On a day-to-day -day basis, any of us can, instead of walking in the Spirit, start walking in the flesh and found ourselves slip, boom, overtaken in a trespass. He says, in doing so, in verse 2, in bearing one another's burdens, what do we do? We fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. 
See, guys, loving one another includes bearing one another's burdens. It includes walking with each other, helping each other not be overtaken in trespass. Why? Because Jesus says when we do this, then the world will know we're his disciples. There's a, a gospel result from us bearing each other's burdens, from us gently restoring each other. There's a demonstration of the gospel. And people say, why do you, man, you guys really put up with each other. Why, why are you so quick to forgive or so quick to restore? Or why do you make so much effort to help each other in your church? This is why. We restore each other because we've been restored. We restore each other. We love each other because we've been loved. This is what the local church needs to be, those who are gently restoring each other. Look at verse 3. He says, And if anyone, for if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now it's interesting because Paul goes from talking about bearing one another's burden to this, what we're going to see in a second, this reality that we need to be ready to bear our own burdens. So in a sense, he goes from, listen, we need to be gently restoring each other or mutually responsible to each other to we need to know that we are personally accountable for ourselves. It's important to see this, guys, because I think sometimes what we want to do is have a mindset that says, hey, you're accountable for me. You're supposed to be helping me. You help me. Come on. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens. Bear my burden. And we forget that it's a mutual thing. And we also forget that ultimately we're accountable to God. We have to bear our own burden. And so this first sort of thing that Paul brings up is this, this, this idea of humility. He says, listen, if there's someone among you who thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And, and it begs us to, uh, to ask, uh, ask ourselves this question. I think we have to ask ourselves, listen, have I been humbled by the gospel? H- have I been humbled by the reality that I am so radically loved by God? Have I been humbled by the reality that I am so radically loved by God and it has nothing to do with me? <laughs> have I been humbled by that? Because I'll tell you what, it's pride that actually keeps us from gospeling each other by bearing each other's burdens. It's pride. Check this out. Paul said this in Romans chapter 12. He said, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now think about what Paul's saying there. If you know the context... Paul will go in, right in, in verse 4 through 8 of chapter Romans chapter 12, he'll talk about the gifts of the Spirit that each of us have. And, and after he says, hey, hey, don't think of yourself too sober, he says, or, or too highly, he says, but think soberly. God's giving you a measure of faith. Now use your faith, basically, to serve the body. Use your gift to serve the body. And, and sometimes, guys, we can be prideful in our giftedness. And that pride can take itself in two ways. It can, it can come across in this, in this idea like, well, you know, my gift's really not that important. You know, it's not that big. It's, just, it's not, I don't even know what it is really. And so I, there's nothing for me to do to help anybody. I can't be involved in restoring people. Paul told the church in Corinth, he says, what do you have that you did not first receive? And now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? How would your folks feel or your spouse feel or your friends feel if this Christmas they give you a present and you go, well, it's it's all right. It's not as nice as what you gave so-and-so. They would feel manipulated. They'd feel hurt. They'd feel unappreciated. But isn't that what we do to God? Oh, I'm not really good at anything. I can't really serve. If if you would have given me a decent gift, God, I would have served your people. But, you know, didn't give me much, so there's not much I can do. That's pride. It's inverted pride. It's acting like you haven't been given a gift that is just that it's a gift. You have a gift. Some of you have many gifts. The problem is most of you probably think, well, I don't know what my gift is. I think some of you guys know, but some of you, I don't know what my gift is. I don't think I can do anything good. You know what? The problem is usually we're looking about what's my gift, what's my gift, instead of just looking to serve, looking to love, and looking to restore one another. If we would just look to bear one another's burdens, you know what would come to the surface? What our gifts are what our gifts are. Paul would say this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, and the eye cannot say to the hand, he's using the whole body illustration, right? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. 
No, much rather those members of the, of the body which seem weaker are necessary. You know, <clears throat> I came here this morning, I'm hacking and coughing, and Kelly's running the other way, putting her hands up, not wanting to get the lurg for me. And, and, and she's like, oh, she's kind of shaking her head. I'm all, what? And she says, are you just going to get everybody sick, you know? And I'm like, well, what else am I supposed to do? I mean, I, I, I got to be here. And it was funny because after it came out of my mouth, I thought to myself, who do I think I am? <laughs> what do you mean I have to be here? Are you guys going to die if I don't show up one Sunday? There's many of you men I could have called up and said, hey, would you just throw something together and teach whatever God's put on your heart? You guys would have survived. And then it's funny because then there's other people that don't show up for months and we kind of go, oh, so-and-so. Oh, yeah, who are they again? I haven't seen them forever. And we act like, well, they're not really necessary. If they don't show up to church, it's not that big of a deal. What is that? Pride. When we think of ourselves too highly, when we think of ourselves too lowly, we have to ask ourselves, have I been humbled by the gospel? Or is my mindset, well, I think I'm something, really, I'm nothing. None of us are anything. Guys, you know we're only deceiving ourselves when we're like that way. We're deceiving ourselves when we think, well, I don't really need to do anything because I don't have much of a gift. Or, hey, I have a great gift, but there's no room for me here, so there's nothing for me to do. We're deceiving ourselves, man. God's called us to be in a place where we are mutually responsible for each other, restoring each other in a spirit of gentleness, but also understanding that we're accountable. Because look what he says in verse 4. But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Let me ask, let's ask ourselves this other question. When it comes to serving one another and trying to restore one another, are we only motivated by how people respond to us? Is that the only way we're motivated? Because what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen guys, in the local church, if your motivation is how people are responding to you, you're going to give up quick. You know what I found? I found that, that, that there's no ministry worth doing for the gratitude that's shown to you doing it. None. And I say that as a... As a as a man who I think has been very blessed, I've always been involved in ministry where people were very encouraging to me in my gifts, always. I, I've been very, very, very blessed. And so that's not a complaint against you guys or anything, but what I'm saying is what I've found to be true is that any ministry that God would have us do, any service that God would have us bring to the body, any kind of relationship that God would have us invest in, that the motivation can never be, well, I'm going to get some real good gratitude from this or people are going to really respond well to me in this. In fact, I think so serious is that issue that we can't underestimate how it can mess us up. Check this out. Jesus, uh, John talks about the situation with the Pharisees and the rulers of the, of the Jews and him. It says, John writes, even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. That means they didn't publicly recognize or, or say that they believed in him. Lest they be put out of the synagogue. And look at the reason was. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Guys, listen. We're called to serve one another, to love one another, to be willing to restore one another in a gentleness. Not because people go, wow, thanks. You're such a good friend. Or what a great brother you are. So hopefully we're telling each other that as well. No, we do it because God says, listen, I'm blessed when you do that. God smiles when we love each other. It pleases his heart. Guys, I'll tell you what. As a father, there is nothing greater than when I see my kids love each other. Nothing. I love it. I absolutely love it than when one of my kids talks about how much they love their brothers and sisters. There's, I mean, I'll tell you what, nothing brings me more joy. How much more Heavenly Father when He sees us doing that. But guys, listen, it's only going to happen when we don't do it so that people respond to us or we don't do it motivated by people are going to go, oh, what a great brother you are. It's only going to happen when we go, yes, Lord, you, I want to please you. I want to hear the praises of God, you see. And then he goes on to say this in verse 5. He says, for each shall bear his own load. Now, what's he talking about? Well, notice, first of all, he's talking about something in the future. You shall bear your own load. But I want you to understand this as well. There's a word here for, the word here for load. It's very different than the word for burden that we saw earlier in verse 2. This word for, lo, for load, is, 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 it sort of describes uh, the rucksack of an individual. 
it's the idea of what a man would rightly carry on his own. He would just, his own rucksack with his, his own possessions and things he would need as he's traveling from one place to another. Okay? It's the appropriate load, in other words. Now, I believe what he's talk, Paul's talking about here is this reality that one day we're all going to stand before Jesus to be judged. I don't know if you know that, but we as Christians, we as believers, are going to be stand before Jesus in what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you know the book of Revelation at all, you know at the very end of Revelation there's what's called the great white throne judgment. That's not the same as this here. It's different. The great white throne judgment is when God judges unbelievers. The judgment seat, or what's often called the bema seat, because the Greek word for judgment seat there is bema, the judgment seat is when God re- or when Jesus rewards us based upon the works that we've done. Now, this is meant to be a motivation to us. God wants us to be motivated in part that he's going to reward us. But it's also a sobering thing. Check this out, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, each one's work will become clear for the day, that's the judgment day of, uh, uh, when Jesus returns and he judges us, that day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And if anyone's works which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so we're not talking about a judgment of whether or not we're going to go to heaven. That is made sure when we put our faith in Jesus. It's Jesus and Him alone that makes us right with the Father. It's Jesus and His work alone on the cross that gives us eternal life. It's our faith in that that gives us eternal life, not our faith in our works. Yet, yet there is a reality that we are still personally accountable for how we treat other people. We're, we're going to be judged by this, guys. And, and Paul's saying, listen, this needs to be part of the motivation and how we operate as a local church. We need to be uh, sober about the reality that what we do is going to be burned up. I don't know about you guys, but when I see Jesus, I don't want to stand before him and poof, everything I've done with my life is burned up. You've, I'm sure you've heard the analogy of when we stand before God in, a, in a, like a sort of a, a video plane on a big screen of your entire life and every thought, deed, word, action is shown, everyone sees it. And we all shudder to think about that, of every secret thought being shown on that day. Well, imagine being in the judgment seat of Christ, even as a believer, and knowing that you have eternal life. And yet, God's saying, okay, here's all the things that you thought you were doing for me or that you said that you were doing for me. And one by one, they go up in smoke. And you realize that you wasted your entire life because your primary concern was not others, it was you. Or your primary effort was simply what you could work up religiously as opposed to what you're receiving in simple dependence on the work of the Spirit. You see, guys, God wants us to be motivated that we're going to be personally accountable. You know what's amazing to me? God's not going to hold me accountable for how you respond to the messages I preach. God's not going to hold me accountable to how you respond to any kind of pastoral care I try to share, share with you. God's not going to hold me responsible for, for whatever answers or lack of answers that he brings to the prayers that I pray. I pray for our missionaries or I pray for you guys that I don't see happening what I'm asking God to do. God's not going to say, hey, I'm holding you accountable that those prayers didn't get answered. No, he doesn't hold me accountable for, for any of those things, but he does hold me accountable of whether or not I prayed. He does hold me accountable of whether or not I was really a pastor in you guys. He does hold me accountable whether or not I'm teaching you the word. He does hold me accountable in the direction that I lead you guys as a fellowship. And guess what? He holds you accountable as well. And guys, this is a sobering thing. Not one where we fear for our salvation because we know our salvation is secure. That's the whole thing that Paul's tried to get through the heads of the Galatians. This, don't you know? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But don't you know that that freedom in the gospel is now brings a great responsibility and that responsibility you're accountable for? You see, guys, God calls us God calls us to do the things 
that lead to love. He calls us to depend upon him to do the things that lead to love. He calls us to that. Every single one of you, he calls you to that. Don't think just because I'm not on your backside to do more at church or to serve more or to to love more or to pray more. Just because I don't come to your door and say, come on, man, you need to do better, that God's not holding you accountable. Just because my style of leadership might be mellow doesn't mean you're not accountable to God because you are. You're accountable to God for what you're doing with the gospel. If you've been set free by it, are you demonstrating that by how you're loving the brothers and sisters in the local church? Now, he then says this in verse 6. He says, Let him who is taught the word share in good, all good things with him who teaches. Now, he goes from talking about, hey, we need to be gently restoring and mutually accountable to each other to we need to be personally, we need to know that we're personally accountable to God to talking about that we need to be intentionally investing in the local church. And I, I say it's a local church for this reason. When he says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, they didn't have internet. <laughs> they didn't have the God channel. Not that I recommend the God channel, but they didn't have that. They didn't have any of that stuff. You couldn't go to some multimedia place and just kind of get a teaching CD. If you were going to be fed and equipped to do what God's called you to do, you had to be a part of the local church. Had to be. And Paul says, here's your priority. You need to make sure that you are sharing in all good things with him who teaches you. Now I confess, I'm completely uncomfortable talking about this because of what it may think that I'm trying to say. So let me be really clear about this. This is not about you guys giving me money. It's not about the fact that Rob every Sunday brings me an apple. (laughs) It's not about any of that stuff. But it is about this principle. It's about a principle that if we're going to be intentionally investing in what God's doing with his gospel, with Jesus, with the good news about Jesus, we need to invest first. We need to invest first where we're growing. Now, this word for share, it's the word, the Greek word koinonia. Some of you guys have probably heard that word. It's a word for fellowship. And it it doesn't mean that you're paying somebody. It doesn't mean, okay, you know, you need to make payment to the guy who's teaching you. No, it means that you share or that you partner. It's about partnership, not payment. And the idea is not just about, hey, the dude who spends time studying and giving you the scriptures, that guy needs a little extra money. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding that we are investing in an eternal kingdom, and he calls all of us to partner in that investment. And the first point of partnership needs to be your local church. I love it, guys. I absolutely love it that so many of you guys support Missionaries for Gospel for Asia. Gospel for Asia is, is just an absolutely brilliant organization. Very few organizations that I've found that have more integrity and are more fruitful for the gospel than that organization. Awesome organization. But man, if you're giving all your money to Gospel for Asia and you're not investing in your own local church, are you fulfilling this? I don't think so. The reality is this, guys. I believe the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul with a principle that we, in, in modern Western times, are not faithful to. And that is that our first investment needs to be in the place that we call home, our church home. This is where we should give financially first. This is where we should also invest with our time first and with our treasure first. I'm not saying I mean, with our talents first. I'm not saying quit your job and come, you know, volunteer full-time for the church. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is this. If we are so busy with all kinds of ministries outside the local church, which are good and valid ministries, that we don't have any time for the local church, are we fulfilling this command? If we are so, (coughs) uh, you know, consumed with all these other things that don't affect us as a fellowship together, a family of families, 
Are we fulfilling his command? Are we actually investing? In fact, look what he says. I mean, he uses really strong language in verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, in talking about sowing and reaping, it's important to understand what he's talking about. He's talking about how we use our time and our talent and our treasure. He's talking about sowing. I think you guys know he's talking about sowing. He's using an analogy from agriculture. The sowing of seed, the planting of seed. And so let's talk about that for a minute. When, when he makes this statement, um, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, what does he mean by that? What's that got to do with sowing and reaping? What's that got to do with seeds and plants and harvest and all that stuff? Guys, has there ever been, ever been in the history of farming a time when someone planted corn seeds and got watermelons. Ever. Has that ever happened? Some of you guys have science backgrounds. Some of you guys are researchers. Tell me, can that happen? Does that happen? No. Sometimes people have ordered a package of seeds that said watermelons and there were corn seeds inside, but that was because they were deceived, okay? But no one plants corn seeds and gets watermelons. It doesn't work that way. I mean, the Bible even talks about this that God says how God's made things. God's created things. In Genesis, it says that God, when he, when he created you know, fruit and vegetation, he says these will produce after their kind. Animals produced after their kind. This is what happens. And there's room for adaptation within those kinds, for sure. But we produce after our kind. Husband and wife don't get married and give birth to baboons. Children who act like baboons, but not baboons by DNA. It doesn't happen. We produce after our kind. Whatever seed is sown, from that fruit is produced. And so when he says, God's not mocked, do you think there's a time when we can say, God, you said it was corn, and all they have is watermelon? No. What God says is going to happen is going to happen. In fact, guys, we are laughing at God when God says, listen, if you sow, I promise you'll reap, you'll reap. And we say, you know, yeah, as if. As if actually corn seed's going to produce more corn. Yeah, right, God. We're mocking him. And what he's saying here is this. He's saying, listen, God's saying, if you are willing to take the things that I've given to you, your time, your treasure, your talent, and you're willing to invest them in the power of the Spirit for the sake of the gospel, He's guaranteeing this. You will reap what you've sown. And you know what's amazing too? When you put an apple seed in the ground, do you get more apples? Do you get more apple seeds? Sure you do. But what's amazing is you don't just get apple seeds, do you? When you, you don't put an apple seed in the ground and then it bubbles up with a whole pile of apple seeds. You put an apple seed in the ground, and what happens? It sprouts. It grows into a strong tree with wood that you can use. It has flowers that give off fragrance. It produces fruit that you can eat. And inside of that fruit is a multiplicity of seeds. And all that came from what? Sowing a single seed. God says, when we go, yeah, God, okay, that, maybe that works in the natural, but there's no way it works with the gospel, the kingdom of God. God says, you're laughing at me now. You're mocking me now. Because that's exactly how it happens. When we say, all right, Lord, I'm going to invest a half an hour of my time praying that Sunday morning is blessed of you, that you meet us there, that the message is powerful, that the, 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 the worship is Jesus-centered, that, that the fellowship is sweet and authentic, and then we go, but it's not going to do any good. We're mocking God. That's what he's saying. When we say, I'm going to take some time and I'm going to go meet with my, my brother and sister and encourage them to trust Jesus and keep walking with Jesus, it's going to be okay. Let's pray through your issues. And then we go, yeah, but it's not going to do any good. We're mocking God. We're saying, yeah, God, you say reaping and sowing, but yeah, I don't know. See, here's the thing, guys. 
we have to ask ourselves this question. If every seed produces after its kind, let's think about what types of seeds are we sowing? Because if we're taking our, the seed of our time and we're sowing it into fleshly things, we're using that for, to buy fleshly seeds, you might say, or plant fleshly seeds. Do we expect spiritual things to come out of there? You know, sometimes I think, guys, we mistake mercy for permission. <laughs> There's lots of times, guys. I can tell you a hundred, give you a hundred examples of when I've just messed up in a huge way, really blown it, and God has used that to, to you know, give me a chance to share Jesus with somebody else or, or encourage somebody in their own walk. God's actually taken my mistake and my sin and my trespass and used it. But you know what? I'd be an idiot to fool that mercy of God for permission to continue and do it. Well, God, if you, you know, if you're going to let grace abound when I'm going to sin, well, hey, I should just keep sinning so more grace can be seen. God forbid. Foolishness. Because here's the deal, guys. If we are sowing to the flesh, you know what we're going to reap? The works of the flesh. What did we read last week about the works of the flesh? The works of the flesh are evident. Ask yourself, do I want to sow these things so these things can come out of my life? The works of the flesh are evident. This is chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, enver, envy, sorry, murder, drunkenness, revelries and the like. Is that what you want coming out of your life? Is that what you want to produce with your time on this earth? If you don't, then don't sow to the flesh. Don't invest your time, treasure, and talent in YouTube and Xbox. And that girl you think is so hot, even though she doesn't know Jesus yet. If you don't want to reap these things that we just read, then don't sow to those things. But, listen, if you want to stand face-to-face with the God who saved you, and be rewarded because you sowed in prayer and you sowed in generosity and you sowed in service that you might love people and see them restored and see them understand who Jesus is and see them walk with Jesus. Then guess what? Keep sowing to the Spirit because He promises you, you will reap what you sow. You will. Interesting too because notice what He says (coughs) in verse 7. I'm sorry, in, uh, in verse 8 he says, For he who sows to, the, to his flesh will of the flesh, literally out of the flesh, reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will out of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And that word of, or that expression out of, it has to do with, the, here's the origin. If it originates with the Spirit, it's going to produce the things of God. If it originates with your flesh, it's going to produce the things of the flesh. See, guys, here's the deal. This is why it's so important for us to be a spirit-filled church, to be a a, a church that's dependent upon the present and sufficient work of God's Holy Spirit. Because if we're just trying to work up things and trying to be more disciplined, all we're going to produce is those things I just read. But if we say, Lord, I'm yours. I've been set free because of the gospel. I believe that. I believe your spirit lives within me. And I just pray you'd lead me by your spirit. You know what's going to be produced? Love, joy, peace, goodness, patience. Because you will reap what you sow. And guys, this has eternal consequences. We can either be eternally corrupt because we refuse to let God do what He wants to do, or we can reap everlasting life, reward in heaven. Now, you need to think too that you can't reap what you don't sow. It's not just... You know, are you sowing from the flesh and are you sowing from the spirit or are you sowing into these things or that things? But you can't reap what you don't sow. And so ask yourself, how generously am I sowing? I think sometimes, guys, we want to pat ourselves on the back because we made the church on Sunday. Oh, yeah. I'm rocking this week. <laughs> it's good. It's great that you made it to the church. But you know what? If you're only sort of not if your life is only about sort of being with Christians every once in a while, giving when you just have a bunch of extra left over, serving when it's convenient, 
why are you surprised when you don't really, gosh, how come I, I'm not very fruitful. I don't know why. What have you sown? A farmer has to sow loads of seed because what? Sometimes the seed doesn't come to pass as quickly as he wants and he needs to get as much harvest as possible. So he sows loads and loads and loads of seed. How much are we sowing? How generous are we sowing? Check this out. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. And notice also it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, to make all grace abound toward you, sorry, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have abundance for every good work. Notice that he calls this generosity, this, 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 this desire or this ability to give generously, your time, treasure, and talent, he calls it a grace. Not a work, a grace. And he says, God's able to give this to you. Guys, listen, if we believe that God has given us his own son so that we could be right with him forever, can't we believe as it says in Romans 8, that he will, with his Son, freely give us all things. Okay, Lord, I believe that you were generous enough to give me your Son so that I could be forgiven and with you forever. But I'm too sure if you're, 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 with, you're, you're generous enough to give me a heart to give or give me the ability to serve or give me a, a love for other people. Why not? <laughs> if God is generous enough to say, hey, I'm going to give you myself, Dying on a cross so you could be made right with me. Can't he also, isn't he also generous enough to say, hey, listen, I want to give you more grace. I want to give you more finances. I want to give you more self-control. I want to give you more wisdom with your time. I want to give you more abilities as you give those things away. You know what I found? The reason we have little is because we're not generous with what we have. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of prosperity gospel where if you will give, if you will give God $10, he will give you $100 back. I promise you that. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about a reality, a principle. Like Paul says to Timothy, godliness is profitable both for this life and the life to come. I'm talking about a principle. Like Jesus says in Luke chapter, I think I want to say it's 19, where he talks about, he talks about, listen, you know what? whatever you've given to me or given up for my kingdom. He says, you'll receive a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. I'm talking about a reality, guys, that you cannot outgive God. And you as a believer in Jesus aren't really living until your life is spent for the gospel. You're not really living. You're not really living. God is saying, listen, you do reap what you sow, and don't you know, I want you to reap so many good things. <laughs> so many good things. Guys, listen. We wonder, man, Lord, how come no one's got saved in our church in a year? Why? I ask that. God, why? What's What's... How come it's been like a year since somebody's actually got saved? And the Lord has to answer back to me, well, John, when's the last time that you sowed the gospel outside of your preaching on a Sunday or a Friday? When's the last time that you loved your neighbor to a point where there was a bridge of credibility that you could clearly share Jesus with that person? You know, I just seem to have holes in my pockets. I can't get my finances in order and I'd like to give to the church, but I just can't. Well, when's the last time that you sowed seeds of self-discipline so you even know how much money you make and what you spend it on? Do you have any clue what you spend on food every, every month or clothes or utilities? Eating out? A friend of mine once decided that he wanted to get on a budget. So he said, man, my food budget's really high, bro. That's why I think we're so broke. I said, how much is your food budget? And he gave me this outrageous sum. I'm like, how can you, with one kid, spend that much money on food? I got five. I don't spend anywhere. How can that be? 
I said, well, we get busy and we eat out a lot. Stop. Anytime you eat out, put it in the entertainment budget and see what happens. So he does that. You know what happens? Food budget, minuscule. Entertainment budget, huge. So really the issue is not we have to eat, you know. The issue is I really don't want to cook or I'd rather have something that's tasty and not so bland or so, and so we'll just go and eat out. Why don't you sow to the Spirit? Lord, give me the self-discipline, this fruit of Spirit self-control, not to always waste my money on things I don't need. And then see if God gives you also the grace, the ability to say, and I want to give this generously to those that are in need. See, guys, I'm not talking about just tithing. I'm not talking about, you know, okay, take the first 10% and stick it in the box. I'm talking about looking out for people in the fellowship and seeing what their needs are. That's what I'm talking about. You will reap what you sow. Now quickly, verse nine, he says, and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I love this. Let's not grow weary. I'll tell you what, as soon as we start wanting to live this way, yeah, Lord, we want to be gently restoring each other, mutually accountable to each other. We want to know that we are personally accountable to God and, and live our lives before him. We want to be in, in, intentionally investing in your kingdom with our time and treasure and talent. And we want to be diligent at this, Lord. We want to be, you know, doing good diligently. We don't want to grow weary. As soon as we start doing this, you know what you're going to find yourself being? Weary. <laughs> it's tiring sometimes. We can get very tired in doing good. Anybody who tells you that, that serving Jesus isn't fatiguing has probably not served Jesus. <laughs> it is fatiguing. But it's fatiguing often, one, because we are looking for the fruit that hasn't quite got there yet. And so we get discouraged. We begin to, as he says here, lose heart. It becomes fatiguing because we're trying to do it in the flesh. We're trying to do it in our own strength instead of walking in the Spirit, being humbly dependent upon the work of God's Spirit in our life. But Paul's saying to us, the Spirit of God is saying to us actually, that look, don't grow weary while you're doing, uh, while you're doing this good, while you're living this way in the local church. Because know this, in due season, you will reap if you don't lose heart if we just keep on keeping on. Really practically, let's talk about how we, not, we cannot lose heart. Check this out. It says this in Luke 18.1, Then Jesus spoke a parable to them for this reason, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Let me make a practical suggestion to you. Take the first energy of your day and pray. <laughs> the, the most energetic part of your day, whether that's, in my case, it's a half an hour after I wake up, not right when I wake up because I'm a zombie when I wake up. After I've had my first cup of coffee, that's the most energized time of the day. That's the time that I need to say, all right, God, I want to spend it in time just talking to you. I just want to be in prayer. You know what happens when we do that? When we take the most energized part of our day and invest it in prayer, we don't lose heart. We find ourselves being able to press on even when it gets difficult. Check this out. It says, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4.1. Sometimes I think we forget, guys, that we are always dependent upon mercy. The Bible says in Lamentations, God's mercies are new when? Every morning. <laughs> Every morning. Okay, sometimes you want to think, oh, I want to receive reward. No, don't live that way. You'll get reward in heaven, no doubt about that. That's a good motivation. But daily, on a day-to-day -day basis, don't look to receive reward. Look to receive mercy. The more we realize that it's all of grace, it's all of mercy, the more we'll start thinking, we'll stop thinking, I gotta earn this, I gotta deserve this, I gotta make this happen. No, it's, it's your mercy, God. I wanna receive mercy. You receive mercy, you won't lose heart. Check this out. A couple verses down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, and everyone over 40 said amen, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. How can we don't lose heart? Because we know God is changing us day by day. This is one of the benefits of fellowship. Because you know what happens when we fellowship together? We begin to notice how people are growing. And you know what we should do when that happens? Tell them, you know what we're really noticing? How you're growing. It's really great to see how you've grown. I've got to say, it's one of the things I love about Frankie. He's really good about that. 
Every time we come together, he says, well, we're, we're growing, bruv. We're growing, you know. There's nothing better than fellowship. <laughs> and he's always encouraging, like, oh, we're growing, bro. We're growing. Keep going. Man, that is so needful to, to be reminding each other. We're being renewed inwardly. God's changing us from the inside out day after day after day. That's what keeps us from losing heart. And in close, I'll close with this. Look at verse 10 practically what he says. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, what does he mean by doing good? Because I can think of lots of examples of doing good. I can think of lots of good things to do. And, and I think we, hopefully we know, guys, we can't, we can't uh, have our, our, our lives revolve around need. If you are trying to serve God based on all the needs that you see, you'll go nuts. You'll go absolutely nuts. You can't do that. Because once you start looking for, for, for needs to meet, you know what you're going to see? There are needs everywhere, and none of us can meet all those needs, okay? So what does he mean by doing good? Let us do good. Well, notice what he says. So he says, as we have opportunities. Well, let's look for opportunities. Keep your eyes open. Today, when we close and, and we all go and have a cup of tea, keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. Sometimes we're conversing with somebody and we're still looking for this huge need. Looking around, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah so your dog ran away, okay, yeah, okay. And you're looking around like, who's really crying somewhere? Who really needs to hear this pearl of wisdom I have to offer? Sometimes we just need to listen to the person that we're talking to and enjoy that relationship and knowing that maybe all they needed that day was just relationship. Or sometimes they just need some prayer. They just need some encouragement or they just need a fiver or something, you know. The reality is just look. Just keep your eyes and ears open as we have opportunity. God, show me what opportunity I have. We were praying as pastors that as we were sort of having our time of prayer and we'd Went out and had a, we went out and had some good food that, that some guy generously provided for us. And, and we were uh, praying before we went out. We just said, Lord, just, would you open the door for us to share with somebody? If it's your will, open the door. And we got to share for two hours with this dude, uh, this guy who said he was an atheist at this uh, mattress place. We were standing outside waiting for the restaurant to open so we could go have breakfast. And it's, you know, it's literally five degrees outside. It was, well, actually it would be more like minus 10 because it's, Celsius here. But it was just absolutely icy, freezing cold. And we're standing out there. And, and the worker comes out and says, hey, you guys want to come in? We'll get you some hot cocoa. It's freezing out there. We're like, oh, that was really cool. And so we went in there. And God just totally opened the door for me and my two of my pastor buddies to just share with this guy. And as he poured out his heart because his daughter had died and he, and he just couldn't understand that there could actually be a God of love that would let his little girl die. In just two hours, our food got cold. We didn't care. Two hours. Why? We just said, God, show us this open opportunity. We just wanted, we didn't say, let's go on the street. We're pastors. We can do some work here. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. We just said, God, just show us an opportunity. And we kept our eyes open and God opened the door. He says also, listen, let's do good to all. Guys, I'll tell you what. If you want to see your neighbors come to Jesus, Keep your eyes open for ways to just love them. I don't care if they think you're crazy when you see them. Hello, how are you? Fine. <laughs> Keep doing it. If they come and complain to you like, your rubbish is all over my grass, I'm sick of it, you didn't clean up your rubbish. Don't go, hey, you back off, your rubbish is not mine. Just humble yourself and say, sorry about that. Go get some bin liners, clean up the rubbish, clean up their rubbish, and get right on a card to him saying, sorry, I'll try really hard not to let that happen again. You'd be amazed what doors will open up if you just take the opportunity to do good to somebody. But notice also this. He says, do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Guys, if we are going to be successful in intentionally investing in the kingdom of God, then we need to be diligent. We need to be diligent at making sure we're doing good here. We need to prioritize our relationships so that we're doing good toward one another. How many of you guys know the Hubbard family? Yeah, just, just about half of you guys. You may not know this, but the Hubbard family has been a part of our church for about Gosh, I'd say two and a half years now. 
But you've never seen him, half you guys, because uh, the, the wife, Zoe, when she was pregnant with her sixth child, came, uh, had a, a situation that she's had before where she was basically bedridden. It was, it's, it's excruciating and painful for her to move at all. And so they haven't been able to come to church for a year. And so what we've been doing as much as we can, different people in the fellowship have been trying to go see them, bring them food when we could, bring them meals when we could. A few people went over there and helped clean the house a couple times. They had this huge allotment. It's like an acre or something. We went and helped work on the allotment a couple times. And I was talking with somebody. I won't say you know, who they are, but I was talking with somebody, and they were sort of thinking, sort of like, maybe it's sort of like a waste of time. I mean, they haven't been at church in a year. I'll tell you what. It's never a waste of time to do good to the household of faith. Never. It's a worthy investment. Guys, this is us living out the gospel. This is us being the local church when we live this way. My challenge to you guys is this. It's very simple. If God has called you to make Servants Church your local church, are you investing here? Are you a consumer Christian? Are you an investing Christian? If this is your local fellowship, are you investing in real relationships? Are you really sacrificially giving treasure, not to me, but to the work of this church? Are you really willing to say, okay, Lord, how can I order my time, not to give up those other fruitful ministries that I might do outside this church, but how can I order my time so that I can be involved in serving people in this church? If this is your fellowship, guys, if this is where God's called you to do, then let's do this. Let's demonstrate the gospel as a local church by having these kind of relationships.